Stories. Everybody's got them, and we can learn from each other. History can be traced through letters and writings, but the one thing that has remained throughout the generations is the oral tradition. Oral history is one attempt to pass along the stories, tales, musings, and remembrances of one family for the benefit of listeners for generations to come. Join us now for this episode of Oral History with Jeff Silkowski. Thank you for joining us today, and I just want to let you know that where we were the last time, we were in three parts of the Zilkowski years. Part one, Riss and I talked about our meeting and our dating. Part two, we talked about our engagement. And part three, we talked about our wedding. And our wedding was an enjoyable, uh, fun day, beautiful day. We loved every part of it. We loved the people that we were with. We loved where we were. We loved just everything about it. But as you all know, life has ups and downs. And in our case, some of the downs came before and some of the downs came after our wedding. And that's what we want to talk about in this episode is we want to just talk about some of the ups and downs in our life uh, during those couple of years right around our wedding. And the first thing we want to talk about, and I'm going to turn this one over to Riss, is Riss dealt with just the difficulties of, of serving her family through being and the executrix of her grandmother's estate. So I'll let her tell that story. Yeah, my grandma, um, she was in her 90s when she passed away, and um, she had made me the executrix of her estate, and uh, which I was happy to do. Um, but she ended up, she passed actually passed away the day after we got engaged. <laughs> so... Um, we got engaged and then I had to leave town for a week. Um, and it was really hard. Um, even though she lived a full life and she knew Jesus, just the logistics and, you know, I wanted, I wanted to spend, you know, a week glowing in the fact that I was engaged and, uh, I couldn't because, um, Jeff was here in Cleveland and I was back in Indiana. So it was, it was very difficult um, just to navigate everything of being an executor of an estate, a state away. And, um, but I'm very glad, even though my grandma never met Jeff, she knew, um, that we were going to get married. I had gone back after we kind of knew that we were going to get married. We weren't engaged yet. I, ended up traveling back for, I believe, one of my niece's graduations from high school. And I got to see my grandma then, and I told her all about Jeff, and she was so, so happy for me and was looking forward to meeting him. And at that time, we had actually decided we were thinking about dates, and we had thought, oh, October 1st would be a good day. And that was, um, was it October 1st? I believe that was her birthday. Mm -hmm. So... She was all excited. It it didn't end up happening that day, but she never knew that. She was, I wish that Jeff had gotten to meet her because <laughs> she was quite something and she would have really liked him. She was I Gigi. Think. She was our Gigi um, to her great grandchildren and um, feisty to the end. So it was, you know, I had to grieve her very soon after getting engaged and just so many feelings of trying you know can I be happy because 
you know, I miss my grandma and it's hard for my mom and her siblings, but I was really happy. And it was kind of nice, I guess, at the funeral and the viewings to get to tell everyone my news kind of helped. I think maybe it did help um, to bring some joy in that. And ironically, every time our family has a funeral or something, it ends up being kind of a family reunion for us. So it's not always a bad thing. Um, we can talk through feelings, but it was, dif- it was just, it was difficult. I was very glad that I didn't have to go through that year of settling her estate alone. I had Jeff with me to support me. And, you know, you never, it's not like you can plan to be an executor. Um, hopefully you don't have to do that. I mean, it's just hard. Anyway. And on top of that, we're planning a wedding. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get all of those details in place. We're trying to figure out these 10 people that we're going to have stand up with <laughs> us and all of the logistics of bringing them to Indiana from multiple states away. We've got, um, home ownership that's on our plate as of July when we bought our home and the joys of home ownership. If any of you uh, own a home, you understand what this is like. Um, it's never a, always just a carefree time. There's always something wrong with your home. There's little things that need to be done all the time. And for us, right about that time, we had a water leak in the basement in the main tap coming in from the street. The week of our wedding. The week of our wedding. And it just became an issue where I couldn't even be in Indiana for that week prior to our wedding because I needed to stay on top of the house. And we had actually even gotten some friends to back me up who were staying here to kind of keep an eye on the home for us in case anything just kind of broke free. So it's just, those are, that's the ups and downs of life. And I know those are first world problems, but it's still just some of the ups and downs that we have. And so in the midst of that, we have this wonderful, beautiful wedding. We have this rich time with family and friends. And then we have our honeymoon together, which was wonderful. And we spent part of the time in Amish country. We spent one night in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We spent part of the time, the last few days of our of our honeymoon, were another one of the downs. And I'll let Risk kind of fill in the gaps there. The McKinley Grand in Canton, Ohio. <laughs> Nothing against McKinley Grand, but we have not had good luck there. The end of our honeymoon in, um, it was in Amish country in Berlin, Ohio, we both started feeling, I started getting a scratchy throat and we ended up spending the last weekend of our honeymoon in the McKinley Grand, um, sick as dogs, um, with fever, chills, <laughs> I don't even know what all. We were we, both covered we up both to the hilt wearing just, sweatshirts and sweatpants and coats and under the blankets just chilling. It was awful. 100 plus fevers, eating whatever we possibly could find through room service. Yeah. yeah, that's the only time I've ever really used room service, but we were in no shape to leave the room. But I think we ate we, one. The first night we were there, we first ate night out. We ate and I then think it, we ate at the restaurant in yeah, the in the base hotel. In the hotel, and then we and then, just the nope. bottom fell out, and we were just sick as two dogs <laughs> in a hotel room for a few days. It, it was, was good times. Yeah, it was not. It was not the best time. We've had we've had other encounters with McKinley Grand where we also got sick, but we're going to save that for another time. Um, so, wholeheartedly endorse endorse that you. Uh, 
be a you know a, a patron at this particular hotel in Canton, but we just can't do it. We have kind of a PTSD about it. So um, the the next step in our in our evolution is we come back from uh, from our time on our honeymoon, and it's now the time where you settle into life together and you start learning about each other and you start growing. Well, it didn't take any amount of time before we got the notice that my mom had passed away. If you've listened to previous episodes, you'll understand that the story actually began in the late 1980s when my mom was diagnosed with Parkinson's and then when she had a stroke in 1995 that moved her from about 40% of her path to 99.9% of her path to where she was completely bedridden to the point where she was actually put into a nursing home in 2003. Well, you have to understand something about my mom. I am the third of three children. I am the baby. I am her baby. I always was her baby. And she spent her entire life protecting me in any way she could. Um, there were circumstances in our family where she became at odds with, uh, with a, a cousin of mine and the cousin made a veiled threat about me at one point in my life. I won't go into the details, but my mom spent her entire life wanting to protect me. I didn't understand as a kid why I couldn't ride my bicycle past the ends of the block and, and that sort of thing. I just thought my parents were overly protective, but my mom took it seriously. And part of her job was being able to take care of me, even in the condition she was in, until it was no longer her job. So my dad goes home from our wedding. We talked about that in the previous episode where my wife met him the day of our of our wedding ceremony. Well, he goes home and he talks to my mom about everything that went on. Now, again, my mom was a fertile mind in a completely shut down body. She couldn't do anything but cry. She had to be taken care of. So my dad goes home and he tells her the entire story about how the day went and how everything was and how happy I was. And I believe... And I, I will only know this when I see my mom again in heaven. But I believe my mom at that point realized that her challenge of being the one to protect me and love me as she did as her child was no longer necessary because I now had a wife. And that it was Larissa's turn to love me and care for me. And I felt like my mom chose that moment to kind of walk into heaven. And, and we've she talked began about letting go then. And her um, grandpa believed it. Jeff's dad totally believed that too, that she was like, okay, my job is done. And she just kind of started letting go. She started, her health started deteriorating. And three weeks after we were married, she passed away. And so it was part of our story. It's still part of our story. So in the midst of what should be our first month together, we are on our way back to Colorado to conduct a funeral for my mom. And and you have to understand, again, the grieving process was now more than a decade old, almost two decades old. And so the, f the first time my mom had gotten sick in May of 2005, my family, my sister, my brother, my dad and I, we had really planned the funeral then. So there wasn't a lot to do. It was just do it. And and as Riss said, it was kind of a family reunion kind of thing. We we held the funeral in the church that my mom and my dad and I all three got saved in. 
Um, so First Southern Baptist Church of Florence, Colorado. And we had family and friends there. We, um, Larissa graciously offered to sing, and she, which she does so beautifully. So she sang several songs. I preached my mom's funeral and did so with not a heavy heart, a, a, a very joyful heart of knowing my mom knew Christ and she was in heaven and she was celebrating and she no longer had to live the way she had been living for the decade prior. And so we just had this wonderful time together that was strangely nice, yeah. strangely fun. Mm -hmm. Well, it was nice for me too. So soon after the wedding, because I don't remember if everybody came, um, but I, I got to spend a, at least a week. We were there at least a week. I got to spend more time with my in-laws. I mean, they live in Colorado. It's not like we can stop by for dinner. So even, you know, just a few weeks after our wedding, I got to go see them all again and um, spend time with them. So that was really, I think it was really good for for me, especially to, to try to develop those relationships and just them get to know me a little better too. And um, just kind of like when my grandma passed, like it was a, a good time of family coming together and being together. And so we had, we had some odd things pop up during <laughs> the wedding and Larissa's no, during laughing. The funeral. During the funeral. I'm sorry, during the funeral. And one of them was that I had lost touch with a good portion of my mom's family. Now, my mom is the youngest of three children, and she has a, a, an older brother, and then her next oldest sibling is a sister, and they had both passed away prior to prior to her passing away. But she had just she had fallen out in a relationship with her brother based on something that had happened years before. And we had just lost touch with his entire family. Now he had two families because he had been married twice, but his original family were two boys and two girls, um, Billy, Bobby, Sammy, and uh, Debbie. And they found out about the funeral we had not planned to, we we just we didn't know where they were so we had not really reached out to them but there was a really unusual circumstances that i believe was again god's sovereignty and providence in all of this in that the my my uncle my mom's oldest brother oldest sibling or her brother his first wife who had been remarried, was remarried to the coroner in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where my mom passed away. And he was, he got a call one evening and he got up and he was going to go take care of the body. He said his wife never asked this question when he was leaving the house, but that night she did. And she asked him, she said, well, who passed away? And he said, well, he's looking on the paper that he'd written down on the phone message he'd gotten. He said, it's someone named Barbara Zolkowski. And his wife said, that's my aunt. And so she knew, so she told the kids and Billy and Bobby and Sammy show up at the funeral 
and none of us had known even how to get in touch with them, but they showed up and it was just a wonderful time to reconnect with, with some older cousins that I had grown up with. Like it, I can show you pictures and have posted pictures on Facebook of myself when I was in my mom's arms and my cousins were around me. So these were cousins that we played with on a regular basis. Um, they lived in Denver. We lived in Southern Colorado, but we had opportunities to be with these people. And so they show up at the funeral and it was just a great time to get to see them again. But in the midst of that, there was some awkwardness. And Bobby walks up and Billy walks up. Billy's the oldest. And, and he walks up to me, he goes, Jeff, I'm not sure you even know who I am. And I said, I absolutely do. You're my cousin, Bill. And Bobby and Sammy. And he said, Jeff, we're, I mean, we were so thrilled to be here and we, we loved your mom so much. And they told me the story about how they'd found out. And so I turned and I introduced my wife of three weeks. I said, and this is my wife, Larissa. And, and, and Bill looked at me and he looked rather sheepishly at that moment. And he said, he was very red in the face. Yeah. I and, remember. And he, and he said, Jeff, I, I'm really sorry. We all, we all thought you were a confirmed bachelor. Okay, I left some silence there because that's kind of what the moment was like. And I totally missed it. Um, and somebody distracted me from that moment. So I didn't think anything else of it. And I just moved on and I kind of went on. And so my family, my close family, my sister, my brother, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, my dad, we and my wife, and we, we all go to lunch that afternoon and we're sitting around the table at lunch and... I explained to them what the conversation was with our cousins, and they were thrilled that the cousins were there. And I turned to my family and I said, you know what he meant when he said he was convinced that I was a confirmed bachelor? That part of my family thought I was gay. <laughs> to which my sister said, do they know you? Like, I was, I was the 12-year-old boy when my sister was 16 and had all of her gorgeous friends wandering around the house, I was the 12-year-old boy that could not stop stepping on my own tongue because <laughs> of all these beautiful girls that were in the house. Um, I, looked at, I looked at him in shock. I'm like, really? Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, he's not gay people. Yeah. And it's just, but that's, the, they had this kind of distant view of me. And I was still a single man at 40 years old. So they had kind of put the pieces and parts together in their own brains that this must be the way it is. And Jeff has chosen this. And it's just, it's not. And it was it was comical for us at the time, but it it's also shows the distance that can grow quickly in a family. I mean, some of the things that had happened between my mom and her brother and sister put that kind of distance between us that they just didn't know who I was anymore. And so more ups and downs throughout our, our time together. Is there anything in particular that you remember about that, the, the first part of that next year that really kind of rocked us? I don't know if it rocked us for certain, but I was very stressed because I was finishing my master's degree. We just gotten married you know, bought a house, went through the death of his mom, my grandma, I'm being executor, I'm working full time, I'm going to school full time, <laughs> trying to finish my master's degree. It was just a lot. There was a lot going on. So I was just, again, thankful that I didn't 
have to like finish my master's and be the executor and try to work full time without the support of my husband because he was wonderful in helping me um, de-stress and keeping me on an even keel for that. So I was grateful that I didn't have to do those things alone. And I, I find value in there's a there's a verse in the Old Testament that talks about the fact that men who were recently married were given a full year to just be with their wife. They, they, they weren't required to work. They weren't. That was kind of the law in the Old Testament. And, and I realize how valuable something like that could be. There's just an adjustment period of two people bringing two very distinct lives together. Okay. Two households. For two us. households full of stuff. Mm-hmm. Two two kind of different upbringings. Two there's there's just a lot that has to be melded and and at least within our worldview, which is Christianity, we understand that God brings two people together and He makes one flesh out of two people and He knits their hearts together. The way to understand the idea of one flesh is if you took a sheet of paper and smeared glue on it and then adhered another piece of paper to it. That's the idea, and it's an imperfect analogy, but that's the idea of making two things one. By the time that glue dries, you cannot pull those two pieces of paper apart without severely damaging one or the other. And that's what marriage is supposed to be. And that's what we, that's how we view marriage. And so our lives were being, that was happening in the midst of all these ups and downs. And as we kind of finish out our time together today, we want to talk to you about where the next real downtime in our life took us. Now, we came together as two people who had never been intimate with anyone else in our lives. She at, Larissa at 36, me at 40, we had never been intimate with anyone prior to our time together on our honeymoon. And so we're also 40 and 36 going, we don't have a whole lot of time to waste here. If we're going to have children, it needs to happen pretty quickly. And so almost immediately we began trying to have a child. And it went for about a year and a half when we finally began to say, there's got to be something going on here because we're doing it okay and it's not producing any fruit. So something must be going on. And so we, f- we, we made a decision that we would investigate our fertility. And Larissa graciously threw me on the landmine and said... <laughs> You can go first. Well, it's just easier to test guys, if you know what I mean, without getting very specific. But um, I'd already had some testing, um, you know, so I knew there might be some challenges on my part. But I'm like, well, you know, guys are easier to test. So, you know, let's start there. Um, so we took the test. We went to Cleveland Clinic and I gave them the sample that they needed. And we went back a week later, and we sat in front of a very sweet man who's now like the third highest person in Cleveland Clinic. His name is Edmund Sabani. He's a urologist. Such he a nice man. had a fellow next to him, a guy by the name of Dan French. And this is how important all of this is. I still remember names. But we sat across the table from the two of them. And 
Dr. Sabani looked at me and he was very serious and he said, Jeff, we really thought we would see a couple of things. At your age, at age 40, we thought we would see some low motility in your sperm and we thought we would see a low sperm count. Now, I'll mark this podcast as being a little more PG-13 than normal. Um, but at that point, he said, what we found was nothing like what we expected to find. And it's one of those moments when you hear the word cancer or you hear the word heart attack or whatever, where kind of the blood drains out of your face. And I didn't know exactly what to expect, but he looked at me and he said, Jeff, we expected the low motility and we expected the low sperm count. What we found is that you're completely sterile. And again, I'm letting that sink in because that's what that moment was like for us. Because immediately your brain starts to calculate going, I have no ability to help my wife do the only thing that she's ever wanted to do, which is be a mom and specifically to be pregnant. Can you talk about your pain in that moment? Um, it was really hard. Because um, I... I don't remember a time in my life that I didn't want to know what it was like to to be a mom, to to be pregnant. I just I still think it's just the most fascinating thing um, that God created women to grow a person. I, I I just think it's beautiful and it's wonderful. It's amazing. And even as a child, I was just in amazement. I just thought that is the most wonderful thing. I'm so glad I'm a girl because I'm going to get to do that someday. And to realize in that instant that that was not going to happen for me. Um, it was one of the hardest things I've ever gone through, I, I think. Um, but I knew that if it wasn't Jeff's child, I I didn't want to go through that. I mean, because I would have been, you know, I knew that I would be a high risk pregnancy from the get go um, because of my age, because of my weight, just and just because other things that I knew about my own anatomy. But I was like, I'm not I'm not going to go through that if the child isn't going to. I wanted Jeff's child and to know that that was never going to happen. I was very angry at the Lord. For a couple of years and um i don't we probably don't have time to go into all that right now but um god redeemed that though and in some beautiful ways um but at that moment that was the most devastating thing i could have ever heard i think and i i had a similar moment and again this is how my brain works i remember walking across the bridge, the one of the sky bridges at Cleveland Clinic, and just carrying the piece of paper that the doctors had given me and stopping. And I moved off to the side into a seating area. And I stood there and I looked at that paper and I just wept because I too had to grieve the loss of what I always wanted to be. From the very earliest days of my life, I wanted to be a dad. 
and I wanted a child of my own and I wanted to have all of those things. So we we needed to investigate what this was, why they why? found out that I am why I was sterile. And so they wanted us to have some genetic testing. Well, the genetic testing was very expensive and our insurance wasn't going to cover it. We actually had a family who had stepped up and said, we will cover the cost of you getting that test. So that was amazing. But the insurance did eventually kind of I think the insurance up. paid for it because it was um actually so unusual or yeah well because he had he ended up would you mind if i say i mean it's just we went to the the geneticist and they're like well you have an abnormal abnormality like you have a genetic abnormality and it's very unusual <laughs> and what that and what that abnormality is is the bottom part of my 22nd chromosome is basically snapped off and glued to the top of my 23rd chromosome and if you know anything about gen genetics about our dna the 23rd chromosome is very key it's where you get what they call trisomy 23 which is down syndrome i thought it was trisomy 21 21 okay sorry right. it has to do with the 21. 21 it's that that's the right one i'm so sorry and so they gave us the odds of what we would have if they could harvest a sperm from me and if they could implant that sperm in my wife and if we could bring that baby to term, we would have a one in four chance of a normal birth. We would have a one in four chance of a Down syndrome child, which we would absolutely love and care for. But we had a two in four, a 50-50 chance that we would have something that they called not conducive with life, meaning a stillbirth, a miscarriage, or a birth shortly after. A death shortly a after A death birth. shortly after birth. And that fits with what had gone on in my family. My brother and his wife conceived a child and Mark Jr. died within hours after he was born and it was tragic and and hard for them. My oldest brother died when he was eight days old. Michael um, never obviously met him. He was he would have been 14 years older than I. Um, so that had been going on and and the difficulty in all of this is that that would die with me and with Mark because neither of us would ever conceive a child, this particular unusual abnormality is going to die with us. But it didn't, like when they, we were told that by the geneticists that we had this one in four chance of a normal birth and a two in four chance of something not conducive with life, we immediately said that adoption is something that we would pursue but it was not something that we could pursue immediately because we had to grieve. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I wasn't ready. Um, it, like I said, it took me about two years before I was actually ready to start the process of adoption. And for those of you who've done it, you understand this. Um, it's, it's not for the faint of heart, simply for the paperwork, the amount of paperwork you have to do, but it's, you have to, you do have to grieve what you've lost and what you'll never have so that you can move on and go, okay, I'm ready because it's, it's a process. It can take a long time. 
Um, ours actually only took about a year and a half, which isn't bad, really. But, um, you know, some people wait for years or it just depends on the type of adoption you're going for. Um, but it's never easy. And you have to go through, oh, I, I got angry more than once that, you know, anybody else can, you know, pop out babies like anything and abuse them or, you know, whatever. And I have to prove over and over again and again that I'm not um, a criminal, that I, you know, I have to get my fingerprints done. I don't know how many times we've had our fingerprints done and background checks run and, um, you know, on the state and federal level and city level. And uh, it's just mind numbing the things you have to go through. But then you realize it's because this tiny person who has to depend on you for everything. It's all about them and it's not about you at all. Um, but yeah, there's a lot that you have to go through and process before you can be ready for something like that. And that's what we want. What we want to do is we want to cover that in our next episode. Episode 10. Way we're going to hit 10. We will. uh, We're going to kind of tell you the, 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 the hill that you have to climb to get there and what the pinnacle of it looks like when you actually get a baby placed into your arms and then the trip home. So we're going to save that for next time. But as always in oral history, I want to spend just a few minutes praying for you, the listener. Oral history is about you. It's not about us, but it's about you hearing these stories so that they may encourage you. So let me pray for you and then we'll close this out. So Lord God, I thank you for the ups and the downs. Life is just that. It's not a smooth road. It's not easy. It's difficult. But in the difficult times and in the good times, we have you to turn to and we have you to rest upon and we have you to pursue. So Father, we do. In in our good times, we run to you. In our bad times, we run to you because you are always faithful and you are always good and you are always trustworthy and you're always there and you're always orchestrating even those most difficult things for something glorious later. And so, Father, we'll talk about those glorious things that came later, even in the midst of the difficulties of this infertility that we just discussed. So, Father, I pray that you would minister to people as they're listening, that when they're going through the difficult, difficult times, when they feel like they're almost at the bottom or that they're at the bottom, that you're there with them. And when they're on their way up the hill and when even when they're at the top of the peak, Lord, you're there with them, and you're always there with them. So, Father, for our listeners, draw them to yourself and reveal yourself to them during those times. Let them see glimpses of you working in the most difficult times and the most glorious times, and draw them to yourself. And, And now, if you don't know Christ, you need to know Christ, because we couldn't have gone through these things without knowing God was in control. And I want to give you the opportunity. If that's on your heart, you can call us. You can you can email us. You can go on our website, oral-history.com, and you can find ways to connect with us. But we want to know that you have come to know Christ. We want to help you grow in your walk. So surrender your life to Christ today, because today is the day of your salvation, is what the Bible says. So we pray this out. We, we end tonight on a harder note, but 
we're going to get back to the more lighthearted times in in in, in uh, episode 10. So we want to invite you to come back in two weeks. We want you to spend some time with us as we go through our adoption years. And for Riss, I want to say thank you so much for being with us today. And we'll see you next time on Oral History. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Oral History. This has been a production of Z Media and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. Join us again next time.